This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of um, having a discussion with Professor Peter McCulloch, who is at the Newfield Department of Surgical Science at the University of Oxford in Oxford, UK. And uh, the topic of this discussion is uh, driven um, around the development of the ideal framework. Um, this is a uh, uh, certainly a great opportunity and honor for me to uh, share this important information with you, and I want to welcome you, Peter. Thank you very much, Pedro. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Peter, this is uh, obviously a, a really uh, relevant topic uh, to uh, many of us in gynecologic oncology uh, pertaining to the issue of the science behind surgical trials, uh, surgical innovation, and technology uh, development. Um, so I wanted to um, start by, you know, certainly you, you've previously and very appropriately stated uh, that in contrast to drug development, the process uh, of uh, surgical innovation adoption, uh, be it technology or procedure, has been fairly unregulated and unstructured and, and variable. Um, so I wanted to just begin by having you share with us um, what is the ideal uh, framework and how was it initiated? Well, thanks, Pedro. Uh, the ideal framework is really uh, a kind of antidote to what I just said. That we all recognize that uh, surgery traditionally has been researched in a fairly heterogeneous manner, and there was no rule book for a long time. So the ideal framework is an attempt to put some uh, structure on things and develop a sensible integrated pathway for step-by-step -step evaluation of new surgical procedures. That's how it started. And then, latterly, uh, we realized that it was equally applicable to therapeutic devices and a variety of other complex interventions. So we got started on this, really, because of my frustration with the fact that uh, surgeons were heavily criticized for the number and quality and size of our randomized trials. I felt that, yeah, we had some responsibility, but there were a bunch of uh, things around surgery that some of our critics didn't understand. And we needed to understand the complexity of that in order to set up a, a sensible integrated pathway for evaluation, as the pharma industry has had with their phase one to four trials for generations. So, Peter, when, when you and your team decided on uh, moving forward with this, uh, you know, certainly what many would consider um, the, 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 a monumental project, um, what was your vision with regards to your main goal um, in, in developing uh, this, this, this concept? Well, this was a, a joint enterprise with a, quite a large international group of collaborators, and I need to pay tribute to some of the outstanding people who helped create this. Um, I think the main goal to start was was simply to understand why we are where we are, what are the special problems of evaluation that makes it more difficult to get to a randomized trial with a surgical operation, for example, than with a drug. Mm -hmm. And once we had actually developed that, it became clear where some of the problems were and some of the solutions began to propose themselves. 
And Peter, when you mentioned certainly it's an international uh, collaboration, and I am certainly proud to be part of this uh, group now as well. Um, how many members would you estimate are part of the uh, of the entire network? When I saw you were going to ask me that, I had to ask our coordinator. <laughs> uh, it's a little indistinct because uh, we don't charge a membership fee, and that always makes things fuzzy. Uh, so she tells me we've got about 500 paid-up members, mm -hmm. but there's a sort of circle beyond that of um, quite a large number of people who are affiliated to us and watch our work with interest and join in sometimes. And like most organizations, there's a small central core that does most of the work. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, 500 is a reasonable guess. Okay. And before getting into the details of what it actually is, uh, w one of the other things also just to for, for our listeners, um, if you could just take us through the, the trajectory of uh, from when you started to where we are today with, uh, with the Ideal Framework. Okay, well, I guess the starting point would be reckoned by most people to be that we got uh, this series of expert consensus conferences in Oxford from between 2007 and 2009, and we published three papers in The Lancet in 2009, mm -hmm. uh, in which we first spelled out the ideal acronym and explained the stages that we felt uh, surgical innovation went through. Um, After that, the next year, I founded the Ideal Collaboration because I felt it was important to have an organization that would take this work forward. And in 2011, we got invited to Washington to by the FDA, who were very interested in the implications of what we had done for device regulation. So that was a first hint to us that actually devices would become a big part of uh, our work. Um, since then, we started annual meetings in 2014, Uh, we had our first U.S. meeting in New York in 2016. And in 2017, I went to the inauguration of the Ideal China Center. So there's now one of those. There's also a major center in Nijmegen in the Netherlands, as well as ourselves. And um, in 2018, that was nine years in, we published an update because we'd learned a lot ourselves in the interim nine years about how to operationalize some of our ideas. So we put in a lot of detail that wasn't in the original papers. Uh, 2019, we published uh, guidelines on the equator network. And uh, last year, we, our major effort was a policy conference with four or five important organizations in the UK where we're trying to work with them to integrate ideal into what they do. And at the moment, we are working with the commissioners. That's effectively... Uh, the people who decide on coverage, uh, what the NHS will cover. Mm -hmm. And they're working on a project to integrate IDEAL into their uh, decision-making process. Yeah. So I think that about brings it up to date. Great. And, and I should add also that, uh, as you mentioned, the, the acronym uh, of IDEAL is uh, based on IDEA, Development, Exploration, Assessment, and Long-Term uh, Study. So, be, you know, as we go into the, the details of, of, um, of what IDEAL um, offers to our surgical research community, you know, one of the things obviously is that, and I think this was uh, part of an editorial many years ago, was that the constant criticism that uh, perhaps, you know, surgeons, and, and, and again, I mean, this uh, statement came with some controversy, that surgeons perhaps are not up to par 
with the rest of the uh, research surgical community, uh, you know, pre- you know, comparing uh, the medical oncologists to perhaps to to surgeons with regards to the quality of the of the surgical uh, studies. Um, wh- what do you think are the the greatest gaps in knowledge as it pertains to surgical research today? Well, you know, it's it's very interesting because um, certainly a lot of the early debate I felt was quite ill-informed. What we found out when we started looking at uh, how new surgical techniques arise is that there are at least two major things that traditional evaluation had left out between the first time you ever do something and when you get to a randomized trial. So the first of these was, as we all know, that... Uh, no operation ever gets done exactly the same time, same way the second time round. You learn something. And I've talked to lots of people who've been pioneers and developed their own operations, and they all agree that's what happens. And there's a fairly short but quite intense phase early in the life of an operation where that's happening a lot until the originators feel that they've got it stabilized. And, of course, doing a randomized trial there does not make sense because you are trying to hit a moving target. It's changing all the time, so you can't compare it with anything. And uh, the next phase happens when the operation begins to get disseminated to other uh, operators. And immediately you have more than one person doing it. You get controversy. Mm -hmm. People have their own little ways, and they do like to do things slightly differently. And some of these differences cause disagreements and may cause differences in outcome, we don't know. Mm -hmm. And they also tend to disagree about the indications, exactly which patients it's right for, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And at that stage, uh, you know, there's a controversy thing which we have to get over, and we have to try and find consensus. But there's also a quality of delivery thing, which is very important in surgery, as we all know. And a lot of trials, if you look at them in surgery, um, going back a few years, have been corrupted by the fact that we launched into the trial too early. And half of the uh, collaborators hadn't really got to the top of their learning curve yet. And that introduces an automatic bias against the new operation. Hmm. So uh, these were the two phases that we described, the D and the E phase, where we felt that a new approach was needed so as to try and provide a bridge between the first inhuman experiment and the randomized trial. And we felt that a lot of our failures as, sur- as surgeons to develop good, high-quality randomized trial were due to the fact that at the, uh, at the pre-ideal uh, world, if you like, uh, there just wasn't there wasn't a map mm-hmm. as to how to na- navigate this territory. Yeah. And and with that, then, what do you think should be uh, moving forward uh, strategies for proper evaluation of surgical? Um, innovation. Um, you know, obviously, this includes also technological innovation as well as procedures. Sure. Sure. Well, uh, we produced a set of recommendations for these two phases for development and exploration. The really important conceptual step is, was to get people to admit that there was a real question to be answered here before you can get to comparing your new treatment with an old one you have to know what the new treatment is and you have to be able to deliver it uh, on a reasonably comparable basis across a a group of operators. So we recommended types of prospective cohort study for both of these, but with different characteristics, just so they would answer the question that was most important at the time. 
So to start with, when you're rapidly changing the operation, you need to report exactly what you did, when you did it, why you did it, and whether it worked. And so we recommend uh, prospective cohorts that report your series case by case by case and tell people exactly those things. We changed this here, this is what we did, this is why we did it, and here's the results. You can see uh, maybe not at a statistically convincing level, but uh, quite often at a pretty impressive level, Mm -hmm. uh, whether that's made a difference or not. And then at the larger stage, the the exploration stage, we're looking at prospective collaborative cohort studies. Mm -hmm. And we're currently doing a project actually looking at the history of high-quality randomized trials in surgery. It's quite interesting. Mm. You can already see some indications that if people had collaborated on a cohort study in the past, they were more likely to come up with a well-done randomized trial in the future. So I think those are the, uh, the sort of novelties, if you like, in ideal. I think it's also worth throwing in here that there's a lot of work to be done in the modern era on how we deal with stage four of ideal long-term study. Mm-hmm. Because uh, in the era we wrote the initial papers, real-world data was not a thing. It just mm-hmm. wasn't there. And now it's very dominant in this uh, space. And we really need to look again at how we develop evidence in the future, particularly in a world where devices are going to be produced with integrated AI, and that's going to be a game changer for evaluation as well. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think you, you, you know, obviously you you alluded to some of these stages, um, and I wanted to just kind of go. Um, a little bit into the details of each of those uh, stages. You know, as you mentioned, there there are four uh, stages, and um, was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about. Let's start with obviously the the first, the first stage. What is the what is the concept behind stage one ideal? Well, we tried to focus the uh, stages around what the expert consensus conference agreed was the way things actually work in real life and. Uh, what do you do if you're going to do a, an operation for the first time ever? Well, hopefully, you're going to report what you did, why you did it, and how you selected your first patient. And those are very important things. And um, one of the things that we emphasize throughout IDEAL is an ethical approach. And an ethical approach to first-in-human studies is interesting because what it means is you really ought to tell other people was the result of your first in human study because that's an experiment in a human being mm-hmm. and you can learn from it whether it's a success or a failure but of course there are very strong reasons why we might not want to report our failures uh, so one of the things that we would like to see would be um, protection against discovery so that people can put their failed innovations on a database that other professionals can look at uh, but, but without uh, any risk, because if they've set things up ethically and properly and they don't go well, it's perfectly appropriate that other people can actually learn from that experience mm-hmm. without the originator coming to any harm. Right. And that, that's uh, obviously the, the idea uh, face of the ideal acronym. Um, moving now to uh, stage two. Stage two is actually divided into 2A, which is uh, the development, and 2B, the exploration. Um, what, what are the characteristics of stage 2A? Uh, and I was wondering, if is this where the learning curves of the surgery come into play? 
um, I think really we all start learning the minute we do a new procedure. Uh, but actually, learning curves are more important in stage 2B because that's where they have a big potential impact um, on evaluation. I think with 2A, this is the stage which I was referring to earlier, um, and I think I went into a little bit of detail there already about how we report things when we are constantly changing the procedure itself. Mm-hmm. So again, transparency is the key point. Explaining to people how we change things and why and what the outcome was, which if you think about it, is something we definitely do not do in the average traditional surgical case series. Mm-hmm. Those tend to be written uh, as if we had always done it exactly the way we do it now. And we report our case series and our results. And it's actually quite rare when you look through the literature to see anyone mention uh, where they realized they could do things better and when they changed. <laughs> so we think that's vital information. Again, it's liable to prevent others from having great ideas that we had that turned out to be bad ideas and repeating our mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then obviously then the, the exploration, as you mentioned, that's the, 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 the learning. Uh, and, 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 and certainly, what, what is the, the goal of, uh, of this exploration phase, the, the 2B, and, and what do we hope to ultimately achieve at that phase? Mm. Well, the original goal was to try and uh, get us to being able to do a good randomized trial together. That was the, the bottom line. But 2B is a complicated area because there are, as I alluded to earlier, a couple of parts to it. Um, one of the most important, and many people listening to this will have personal experience of this, is that it can be very difficult uh, to get surgeons to reach consensus on things because we're all kind of individualistics and we all like to do things our own way. And sometimes it's very difficult to draw a line around something and say, okay, these variations are okay. That is definitely that operation. But that variation is, is too much. Mm-hmm. It's not. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the ways that we think is very helpful to try and reach agreement on the operation is for everybody just to collaborate and put all their cases into a prospective cohort for a year or so uh, so that we trust the data. We're putting all putting uh, cases into the same database with the same definitions. And that makes it a lot easier for people to sit back and look at the variations. And sometimes the variations that people worry about turn out not to be that important. Mm -hmm. But the other issue in the meantime is that you can actually monitor your your own learning curve. Because as you're accumulating data, there are relatively simple statistical techniques you can use uh, to see whether things continue to get better, meaning you're still learning, Mm -hmm. or whether you've plateaued. And our argument is that At very least, you should measure the learning curve, but ideally, you should wait until people have reached a certain part of the learning curve before they can enter a randomized trial. That way, you're going to avoid that uh, serious bias against the new innovation that you might otherwise run into. So uh, those are a couple of the things in 2B, but we also latterly, and this is something we didn't publish too much about in 2009, have realized that it's also important to do a little bit of qualitative research when you've got a lot of colleagues collaborating. It's important to talk to them and try and reach an agreement about what they think the real randomized trial research question ought to be. Mm -hmm. 
because if you don't have good agreement on that, you're not going to get anywhere. And also to involve the patients. Go ask the patients, we're thinking about doing this trial. Would you be happy to be randomized in it? So that's why I say it's quite a complicated space. There are two or three maybe, maybe major issues, but it's all about trying to build towards a randomized trial. Sometimes, however, you know, it shows that actually a randomized trial is not feasible, at least not the way you thought. And um, I had a great example of this, actually, because I collaborated with a Chinese group a few years ago mm -hmm. on a non-surgical intervention for uh, uterine fibroids. This is a high-intensity focused ultrasound. And they had done a very large prospective cohort study, but they had actually allowed the patients to choose <laughs> to have surgery or to have the high food. And when you looked at their results, uh, the difference in terms of short-term recovery and complications was colossal. Now, this was not a randomized study. The patients chose, and when you analyzed the difference in the po patient population statistically, it was clear that it was highly significant. But it wasn't significant enough in the view of most of us to explain a difference between 0.3% significant complications with HIFU and maybe 10 or 12% with surgery. Mm -hmm. So that taught us that if, if complications were your outcome, there is just no point in trying to do that randomized trial. Nobody's going to go into that. Uh, so that's an example of how sometimes TB studies tell you you can't do that trial. But what it did tell them was maybe you can do something else. And they ended up thinking about doing a randomized trial uh, with uh, recurrence of the fibroids as the endpoint. Because of course, with the myomectomy, that could happen. And with uh, high food, that could happen. And actually, nobody knew the recurrence rate after high food at the time. Yes, yeah, so that's really a, a very interesting uh, principle and concept of having also um, patients' uh, input into the development of these. And, and, and along with that, um, you know, Peter, in terms of the challenges of, of the exploration phase, uh, I think that I was reading a, a often a quoted statement that it said, it, it's always too early to do a randomized trial until, unfortunately, it's suddenly too late. Um, I was wondering if you can expand on that. Well, again, I suspect a lot of your listeners may have had that very experience. <laughs> right. um, the, the, trouble, the trouble with us is we're, we're enthusiastic about improvement. And if we see, see, see something that we like, we tend to go for it. So um, the, the, the moment of equipoise, when we're unsure whether this is um, a good idea or not, is often quite short. And I've actually done a little work with uh, psychologists showing that surgeons have less equipoise in general than other physicians, <laughs> which is the flip side of the coin of saying we're more decisive. It's actually exactly the same thing, you know, and I think most people would agree that being indecisive is a bad characteristic for a surgeon. So it's, it's uh, one of the things we have to live with because of the, the people we are. Um, but, yeah, I've recently come across this with a trial we're doing in the U.K. on neurosurgery. Uh, for glioblastoma, where um, you know the surgeons were very interested in doing uh, an ideal stage study, because the one of the advantages of the 2B study is if you want to get on and do the new operation, you can do it to every patient. During the ideal 2B exploration cohort study, you don't randomize, so you're doing the new thing to every patient. You get up your learning curve fast, and that's great. Mm -hmm. um, the difficulty came when we got funding. Suddenly, some of the people. Uh, thought, well, hmm, if we go through this exploration thing, 
then we're going to have to wait longer before we can do the randomized trial and get a publication journal. So let's just skip that and go to the randomized trial. And so that's Martin Buxman's law coming back to bite you. And what I learned from that is that actually um, we're sometimes our own worst enemies and that in any future uh, exploration studies I work with surgeons on, I'm going to have it more or less signed in blood that, yeah, you do have to complete the exploration <laughs> stage before you can go into the randomized trial. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and as you said, it's always very tempting when uh, we as surgeons already feel that uh, we have already enough evidence and, uh, you know, it's time to just uh, proceed on to um, either a trial or, or, or in certain cases on to just a, a standard practices uh, with, with the new approach. Yeah. Now, um, with regards to stage three, the, the assessment uh, stage, um, you know, certainly this is uh, the stage where we assess the, the effectiveness against um, the current standards. Um, what, what, what would you say these are, are the primary objectives and the, and the principles um, uh, for this particular stage, this stage of surgical assessment? Well, in essence, uh, you know, ideal doesn't say quite so much about this stage because it's all been said. This is randomized controlled trial territory. This is the territory that evidence-based medicine people love to talk about. Mm -hmm. And we don't disagree with anything that they say. You know, randomized trials are the best method for comparing one treatment with another. If your question is, is A better than B, then a randomized trial is always your go-to tool. Sometimes, though, in the earlier stages, that's not your question, which was what we were discussing earlier. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of things that we do emphasize about uh, randomized trials in IDEAL. One is that uh, because of some of the characteristics that we've talked about earlier, it's a really good idea if uh, the surgeon is taken out of the picture when it comes to consent. <laughs> now, there's quite a lot of evidence for this now. Um, we, we find it very difficult to be dispassionate and objective when we're explaining our treatment to patients. And they, they pick up on this. So there are quite a few surgical trials where we found recruitment was poor because the patients got the drift of how the surgeon was thinking and said, forget about the trial. I'll go with, with what you think is best. Um, so there's quite a famous study from the UK, Protect, about prostate cancer, which showed that when you took the surgeon out of the picture um, or trained them specially or introduced a research nurse to do the consent instead, uh, recruitment went up. And we hadn't cheated the patients in any way. We'd given them the exact same information, but we'd given them it in, in a format which uh, made it easier for them to see that, yeah, there is a point in going into this trial and it's actually okay. So I think that's probably the only thing that we would uh, really stress in IDEAL that isn't already taught in standard courses in evidence-based medicine about stage three. Yes, yeah, that's, uh, that's also fascinating, and I'd really like to get a hold of that study. That's uh, very interesting and something that I think we all have seen in terms of the uh, uh, the, the process of the consenting as to who does it, and, and particularly, again, for, for surgical randomized trials, if, uh, if it is the surgeon, uh, certainly, um, to your point, uh, likely that the surgeon is going to obviously um, likely to persuade uh, the, 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 the patient towards what their own uh, believe as to what's the best approach. Now, um, with regards to if, if you can't do a randomized trial for whatever reason, 
you you also have highlighted a number of other strategies, and I'm I'm going to uh, go through them. And then I was wondering if you can just briefly share with our audience what these mean. Um, you talk about a parallel group, non-randomized study. What what does that mean? Well, uh, I guess it's sort of um, means what it says. So that, uh, you know, we're looking at a, a com comparison between two groups of patients getting different treatments, but uh, the comparison, the selection is not random by randomization. And this always throws up quite a lot of challenges because it's impossible unless uh, possibly you have a population the size of China to find uh, people who are equivalent so that you can pair patients mm -hmm. in an adequate manner. And uh, there are, as you're well aware, quite complex statistical techniques to allow adjustment for some characteristics that might be different between the patients. So um, things like uh, instrumental variables and so on uh, can do that so long as you know what's important. If you know what's important in deciding whether the treatment works or not, you can look for it and you can get the statisticians to allow for it. But if there's something in there that's important that you don't know about, that doesn't work. So, uh, you know, sometimes there, when there's no alternative, those are reasonable studies, but they uh, will never come on a par with a randomized trial. Sure. And then uh, going on to the other type of study, a controlled interrupted time series study. Mm, yeah. So these are uh, studies where you essentially have two groups, One gets treatment and the other doesn't. And what you do is uh, look at the outcomes in a kind of run-up period before the experimental group starts getting the new treatment mm -hmm. and then for an equal length of time afterwards. So what you expect to see, if your hypothesis that the new treatment is better, uh, is a sudden jump in the outcomes in the uh, in the experimental group. Mm -hmm. And um, that can be a very good and valid method, but it's quite rigorous because you need to get a lot of data at very specific time points, both before and afterwards. Otherwise, the, the statistics uh, don't work out. Right. Um, and what you're using the control group for in this is essentially just to see if there's something else happening that actually might falsely improve or uh, deteriorate your results for you. So uh, we actually had a great example of this in the UK with quite a well-done study like this. Um, back in the early 2000s, when there was a political decision to pump a whole lot more money into the NHS. Mm -hmm. And you could see that uh, the, the uh, patient safety study it was that was published showed really good improvement uh, in the experimental group. But when you looked at the control group, they got better too. <laughs> and overall, the, the improvement was not significant. And the conclusion was, well, everybody's getting better because there's so much more money around. Yeah. You can do so much more. <laughs> so that's a, that's a good example of uh, where a controlled interrupted time series was helpful in avoiding us from fooling ourselves if we found a, a sort of panacea for patients. Sure, sure. Um, and then the, the next one, I don't think it's been used in surgery very often, but uh, the, the step wedge design or randomized rollouts. Um, what, what are those? Yeah. Well, I quite like these because what this is, is that uh, you, first of all, and this is what people like about it, everybody gets to do the new thing. So mm. you don't have half of the uh, 
centres um, or stations allocated to the old thing, but they get it at different times. So typically this is done not on the basis of the individual patient, but on the basis of the hospital saying, okay, you're going to start doing the new operation in January, you're going to start doing it in March, you're going to start doing it in May, and so on. And you have a run-in period where they look at their results with the old procedure and then follow uh, follow-on period when they look at the results of the new procedure. And statistically, this can work out really powerfully. So it's good in that it is randomized. Um, you do get a before-after comparison where the same hospital is its own control, but there are a few tricky bits about it. Uh, it's sometimes difficult to control people's impatience if they're last in the queue. Mm-hmm. And if they're going to be the very last mm-hmm. step in the wedge, then you often find that people start doing it, doing things anyway. Um, and again, you have the risk that uh, things might just generally get better or generally get worse whilst during your series. Nothing's perfect, and neither are uh, step wedge designs. But uh, I think they're very powerful because there are a lot of situations where cluster randomization is not going to work because nobody wants to be the control hospital. Sure. And now um, tracker trials. What are those? <laughs> I don't have much to say, honestly, Pedro, about tracker trials. They were a great idea, thought up by a very bright uh, English gynecologist, uh, Richard Milford. Mm-hmm. Um, but I checked on this uh, before we talked, and there have been very few attempts to actually do a tracker trial. It's a fairly complex design, uh, design intended to allow you to randomize a whole lot of things to at the same time, mm-hmm. and it's got some similarities to modern platform trials. I don't know if any of your listeners would, be, would have been um, interested in following the COVID research. I mean, I try and follow it here, but there's a great one called uh, Recovery mm-hmm. from, from Oxford from a guy called Martin Landry where they're introducing a whole bunch of treatments, and they have a kind of um, uh, system of introducing new new uh, potential treatments and dropping ones that are clearly not working. Mm. Uh, but it's statistically very complex and difficult. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, it's got to be a statistical a bit of a nightmare. Uh, and then the last one I wanted to ask you, expertise-based randomized trials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is quite a popular idea with surgeons because people often say to me, well, you know, I like the, I like the operation I do, and if you make me do the other operation, I'm not going to be as comfortable with that, yeah. and that might affect the outcomes. Mm. And, th- and we can recognize the, the, the truth in that. Um, so the idea of expertise-based trials is, yeah, you do the operation you like. That means the patient doesn't get randomized just to an operation. It gets ra- randomized to uh, an operation as a surgeon who does that operation. Mm-hmm. And uh, that could be valid. Uh, again, nothing's perfect. The main difficulty with this is pretty unusual to have a surgeon who does operation A and a surgeon who does operation B in the same hospital using the same anesthetist and the same nurses Mm. and the same intensive care unit and all the other resources. So what you tend to buy is a whole package. And so there are a bunch of confounding factors that can come in and bias your results because all the people who do operation A happen to work in big university centers Mm. and all the people who do operation B don't. Absolutely. So uh, now, Peter, um, getting on to the last uh, stage, the the long term, the surveillance. Uh, what what are the key elements in this stage of the of the ideal framework? Well, uh, the 
main purpose of surveillance is to look for things that happen late, a long time after the procedure, or things that are very rare. Uh, these are both things that are very difficult to pick up in randomized trials, because even a big randomized trial with hundreds or thousands of patients might only pick up one or two instances if the uh, adverse outcome is rare but really nasty. Mm -hmm. And uh, likewise, most randomized trials are not funded to carry on following people for 10 years. Right. So the best solution we can have really is to have a data set where we collect as much information as possible on as many patients as we can for as long as we can. Uh, now that can be a very expensive enterprise, but we're basically talking about registries here. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, key issues about registries, which we mentioned in our ideal recommendations, is you can't include all those data points you include in a randomized trial. That's just too much work for mm -hmm. everybody and too much money. So you've got to try and really go for a very sparse data set, but try and collect it on as big a population as you can. And of course, to try and avoid biases and registries, the issues that cause bias are often what part of the population are you studying? Is it just company X and their device? Because that's an immediate potential source of bias. Um, is it just people who had this procedure or is it everybody who had the condition? Mm -hmm. And um, the other issue that we talk about a lot is actually who's in charge? Because again, there are conflict of interest issues that can come into play if uh, it's uh, you know government paying or it's uh, an industrial company paying um, and there are issues about who controls the data. So I think really when it comes to stage four, a lot of the issues are about that kind of governance mm -hmm. rather than about methodology and statistics. But again, stage four is also what I mentioned earlier. This is the big playing field for the future because of the advent of real-world data and because of the advent of so many new devices right. uh, that randomized trials for every device are essentially going to become impossible. And so many modifications of devices happening at such a rapid pace that we are going to have to develop rigid, rigorous uh, statistical techniques for continuous evaluation of a device. Just doing one randomized trial is not going to be enough. We're going to have to have a way, a way of uh, surveilling uh, devices throughout their life cycle um, because otherwise what we look at in 10 years' time will be really quite different from what the what device was when the randomized trial was done. Yeah. And that's something that we're actively researching and uh, very happy to invite any of your listeners who are interested in that sort of uh, topic to get in touch because it's a fascinating and difficult issue and we need all the help we can get. Yeah. You, you might actually get uh, quite a number of uh, contacts. Uh, so um, now, you know, obviously this, this has been uh, really fascinating work uh, that you and, and the team have done. Um, overall, when, when you look back and you say, I think that our greatest achievement has been this, what would you say? Well, I think our greatest achievement has just been to change the mindset and uh, get everybody to think uh, a bit more about why surgery and devices are such a challenge to evaluate and to establish a integrated pathway, a kind of map how that allows people to navigate their way through the evaluation of their treatment from day one to get up to the randomized trial and beyond. So I think those would be the two things I'd say. Yeah. 
And then now before uh, concluding, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. And, and one of them is, um, you know, of course, obviously, this takes a tremendous amount of uh, resources uh, and, and personnel to, to drive all of this. Um, what, what do you find as your, as your um, you know, certainly your greatest level of, of funding and, and, uh, and how do you look for funding for, for um, maintaining this organization? <laughs> well, uh, that has been a real struggle, I have to confess. Um, ideal is, well, how do you classify it? It's methodology. And uh, certainly in my country, nobody pays for methodology. So it's been a real struggle, but uh, I've been amazed by the altruism and dedication of so many really brilliant people who've been willing to collaborate on some of the work I've described today, uh, free out of their own time. Uh, we do get funding, of course, um, and we need some just to keep the basics of the structure and office together. Uh, we have a biomedical research center in Oxford, which helps. Uh, the National Institute of Health Research gives us a little bit. And we've had good relationships with some companies. Um, and I'm quite happy, actually, to mention, mention particularly Medtronic and Johnson mm -hmm. & Johnson, who have been willing to enter into very arm's-length agreements with us about uh, unrestricted educational grants. Because clearly, being the organization we are, it's very important for us seem to be completely independent of any company of course. and uh, I even at one point did a consultancy with the Chinese company that's the Haifu study I was referring to uh, because they paid very generously, generously and that helped support ideals for a couple of years yeah. so it's uh, basically we'll go anywhere we can find funding so long as it doesn't interfere with the integrity of the organization fantastic and now, um, one last question, and uh, I thank you, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of your time. Um, you know, looking at the future goals, um, how should the work of Ideal Impact journal editors, regulators, or even professional societies? Mm. Well, I guess the, one of the top future goals with Ideal is simply to get it integrated into our system so it becomes common practice. And we're still really at the beginning of that process. Editors are very important. We've had great press and great support from the British Medical Journal, from The Lancet, and from Annals of Surgery, those three journals in particular. Um, but we would like to see surgical journals putting it into their instructions for authors, saying, you know, if you have a pre-randomized trial study, have a look at where it fits on the ideal uh, framework and write it like that. Mm -hmm. That would be a huge change because, of course, people are reluctant to write things up as ideal studies if they don't know whether the journal has even heard of ideal and whether they like it. Mm -hmm. So editors are very important, and um, we're getting more support like that now. And if I can put in one little plug, I'm co-editor of a BMJ journal called Surgery Innovations in Health Technology now, where we actively encourage people to submit ideal format papers. Um, regulators, likewise, if you're talking about device uh, research, then regulators are very important. And we are in a lot of discussions with our British regulator, the MHRA, about this. And we've also had a couple of seminars with the FDA about uh, how they could use IDEAL in, in their work. Not sure whether we've convinced them all yet, yet but we're trying. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, professional societies, again, I think it's a question of if, if people in authority in professional societies are willing to endorse ideas and saying we recommend people will, to use it, that's going to help a lot. And you know, we're very glad that the Royal College of Surgeons here have endorsed uh, the use of ideal and particularly suggested that people should use an ideal approach when they're introducing a new procedure into their hospital. Uh, so those are some of the uh, things about integration. I mean, beyond integration, uh, Pedro, I just wanted to mention a couple of things we're doing in the future. One of the most exciting is that one of my young PhD students, and I have to give him a name check because this was his idea, mm -hmm. uh, Baptiste Bazzi, um, came to me a while ago because he was very interested in artificial intelligence and machine learning mm -hmm. and pointed out that the machine learning research currently has exactly the same problem that surgical research had when we started IDEAL. There's an o a load of studies being done, what they call in silico, with the computer just being fed imaginary data, mm -hmm. and that makes the computer look great. And then there are some randomized trials, but in between there's nothing. And there is a big problem, just like there was for surgery with the learning curve. Only with artificial intelligence, the problem is the trust curve. Mm -hmm. So nobody's actually going to let the computer decide your treatment in the near future they advise the clinician. And the clinician has a, always a little bit of distrust of the artificial intelligence system because we don't know how they came to this conclusion. Mm -hmm. So to start with, the relationship between the clinician and the machine is unstable. So Baptiste is now starting something called Decide AI, which is an offshoot of ideal uh, for artificial intelligence and healthcare. And that's certainly something you should watch out for because I think he's going to do a great job with that. Um, the other thing we're very interested in, I already mentioned, which is uh, looking at how IDEAL deals with, uh, with real-world data. And the third thing is that we are trying to improve IDEAL. Mm -hmm. uh, I always say when I give talks that um, you know, IDEAL makes pretty much sense to most people, but it was developed by an expert consensus conference. And if you look at the evidence-based medicine pyramid, pyramid of evidence, well, that's right down at the bottom. It's level four or five. Mm -hmm. So what we need is evidence from lots of real-life real examples of whether our recommendations work or not. And we've now got a project going where we're advising people, and again, anyone can join this, that if you write to us and you want to do your study in ideal style, We'll help you, but we, in return, we want you to tell us how was it for you, mm -hmm. what you found difficult and what you find, found easy, and that way we hope we can improve uh, ideas for the future. Yeah. Well, this has been um, absolutely a, a pleasure and certainly an honor to, uh, to speak with you. I certainly um, uh, will be bringing uh, this uh, concept of the ideal framework to the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer because I think absolutely... It's the, 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 the right strategy moving forward for uh, journals to do so um, and require it of the authors. Um, I want to, again, thank you for this time and also thank you for all the great contributions you and your team have made to surgical trials and surgical innovation. Thank you so much, Peter. Okay, Pedro, I'd just like to thank you for the opportunity uh, to speak to your contributors and so on and for uh, the the great work you've been doing there in MD Anderson and uh, the great example you've set to other surgeons of uh, doing the trial and publishing the results and making people understand that uh, you know it's important that we evaluate
evaluate our results properly uh, for the future of surgery. And sometimes results come out the way we want, sometimes they don't, but at least we know the truth. Thank you, Peter. Okay, thank you.